All right, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Once again, we're in a, in, a, in a kind of a theological study, but we are looking at theology through um, the, the story of Abraham, the story of Jacob, and the story of Joseph. And, and we're just starting off in the life of Abraham and looking at the wisdom, the perfect wisdom of our God in sanctifying his people, in, in calling them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's metaphorical to refer to calling us out of sin and the bondage of our sin to serve and be loved and love him in a wonderful relationship with God. Um, that's what we're looking at theologically, but we're looking at that through the story of Genesis. And, and we are now in the call of Abraham Uh, by God to the promised land. Um, Let's read our passage. It's Genesis 12, verse 1. And Yahweh said to Abram, wow, my voice, just beautiful in this room. Uh, Go forth from your land, from your kin, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. So Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, And they departed to go forth to the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your seed I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Yahweh who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this passage of scripture that doesn't just show us what happened, but also what happens. It shows us how you work in calling people to follow you. And I pray that you would work in our hearts through this passage to show us how you also call us to follow you as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My, my goal is simple this morning. I just simply want to make an argument that the way God calls people to follow him is always the same. When God calls people to follow him, to enter into a relationship with him, to to use a, a New Testament term, to, to become his disciples and learn of him, he calls them in the same way. Our God is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And the way he called Abram is the same way he called his disciples and the same way he calls you. And I want to show you that today simply by looking at the call of Abraham. Just the call of Abraham. His name is not yet Abraham, of course. It is Abram but it soon will be Abraham. And I want you to just 
uh, just kind of follow along the story by, by just examining the call of Abraham through key words. I'm just going to give you a few key words, key words about God's kind of discipleship. And, and this is kind of how we're going to break it down. This, this, is, this is the key words that we're going to use to kind of sum up God's call to Abram. And I'm going to make the argument that this is exactly the same way that he calls you to follow him as well. So there's just going to look at some key words. And, and you should be looking within these key words for the true evidences of a follower of Jesus. What are the true evidences of a follower of Jesus? And also, you should also be looking for uh, the way that our God strengthens faith through the very way that he calls us to follow him. It is actually, it is actually one of God's means of strengthening your faith in the very way that he calls you to follow him and to be his disciple. So look for those two things. Now let's, let's just uh, uh, dig into our key words. The first key word I want to emphasize to you this morning is the word hearing. Hearing. Write that down on your outline. Abram goes nowhere without hearing from God and hearing God's word. That's significant. Abram was in Haran. Abram was in Ur. And nothing would have changed for Abram. He would have stayed there with his gods and with his family and in his land and with his comforts had God not spoken to him. Abram heard God's call. And that's what began the change in Abram's life. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That's where it begins. It begins in, in hearing God's word. That's why we spend so much time preaching and speaking God's word, because this is the means of faith. Faith comes from hearing truths about God, truths about Christ, what he has done and what he calls you to do. But it begins with hearing. And, and this is very important. God must speak through his word. Following God isn't something you just decide to do one day. Following God is a response to something that he commands of you. It's always a response. So much of the Christian life, actually, is simply responding to God. Worship is responding to God. Prayer is responding to God. Discipleship is responding to God. You hear God call you to follow you, and you respond with obedience and with faith. This is important to us, because we need to always remember that my faith didn't start with me or my goodness or my love or my graciousness. It began with God's love, God's grace, God's purposes. That is where God's call came from. And I am hearing, hearing a call to obey him and to follow him from a God that has started it all. And that is why I, I follow with such endurance, with such strength, because this wasn't my initial idea. This wasn't dependent on my strength or my wisdom. This is God's wisdom. And that's a delight to follow. That's a great assurance to my faith. God started it. God started it. How do you know that you have heard God's call? How do you know that you've heard God's call? Are you convicted by sin? That's a evidence of God's call. Are you convicted by the seriousness of eternal judgment? That's an evidence of God's call. Are, are you convinced by the glory of your great Savior? That's an evidence of God's call. 
We just sang a song about our great Savior, didn't we? The, the song is bold in what it proclaims, and, and the, the very words of the song are rooted in the, the pages of Scripture themselves, right? When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, I don't look within, but I look to him who is continually praying for me and speaking his blood over me. Satan says, here are all these sins, and I trust in the blood of Christ for all of them. That is what faith is. That's what faith hears. That's an evidence that you are hearing. Hearing, truly hearing. Not just with your ears, but the the ears of your heart. You're convicted by sin. You're convinced by judgment. And you're, you're, you're rejoicing in the greatness of your Savior. You're hearing these things. You're hearing these things. But that leads us to our next key word. Not just hearing, but think about this. Another key word. A key word that, that shows us the kind of discipleship God calls and always employs. The word leaving. Think about the word leaving this morning. Obedience leaves. Obedience is also always the true mark of real faith. That's the true evidence of real faith. It's, it's obedience that clearly characterizes the beginning of the Christian life. And it is clearly obedience that, that characterizes the, the ongoing nature of the Christian life. You, you are leaving something and you're choosing rather to pursue something else and and obey someone else. That is what the Christian life looks like. Notice Abe leaves in chapter 4. And what's significant about this is, is the way that Moses chooses to describe his obedience. Notice verse 4. So Abe went forth. You may be, not be able to hear that because of the massive truck that just drove by. But the very word went forth is the same Hebrew word that God used in his command. Go forth. You can kind of see it there, the forth, forth, forth. But it's the same word. God, God calls Abram to go forth. And what does Abram do? He goes forth. And perhaps that's, that's Moses' way of kind of emphasizing something. Abram's obedience was word for word. Abram's obedience was copy and paste. He, he, he obeyed the Lord right away from the heart with the very words that God called him to do. But notice also, Abe was called to leave a lot as well. And this is where I think we see the obedience of Abram really come through. What, what is Abram called to leave? Verse 1 tells us, from your land, from your kin, from your father's house. Now perhaps some of you um, aren't from the ancient Near East. All of you aren't from the ancient Near East. So these, these departures, this, this leaving maybe doesn't sound that significant. Maybe some of you are like me, and you have literally left your land, your kin, your father's house to come out to here in Bakersfield, right? You've moved maybe a lot in your life, and so you're like, 
well, I do that every day. Is that what it means to follow God? No, this is, this is very significant. Back in those days, you didn't leave your land, your kin, your father's house. These were the, the three, these were the three like vital relationships that you had. Nobody left their land, their kin, their father's house. These are the most significant relationships in your life. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, they, they had multiple gods and they had a God that kind of represented all of these relationships. You had a, a God of your current land. You had a God of your clan or your tribe. You had a God of your father's house. So what Abram is doing here is he's not just leaving significant relationships. He's also leaving his gods. We see that very clearly. That's what God is calling him to do. But he's also just leaving everything he knows to follow God into something he doesn't know. He, he, is, he is leaving all of his relationships. He's, relieving, he's leaving all of his comforts. He's leaving all of his securities. He's leaving his, his investments. He's, he's leaving his future land, right? He, he would inherit his father's land. And actually, Abram leaves right after his father dies. So he, he doesn't inherit that either, if there was any land to be left to him. Notice the significance of his obedience, because he leaves all of this. And your faith might not always look exactly like Abram's faith, but I guarantee you that in following God, he will also call you to leave something as well. It might not be exactly dirt or an area of dirt or your father's house necessarily. Some of you can't wait. No, hopefully not. Uh, But he will call you to leave something. Following God means you leave something. Let me list off a few things that you must leave to follow Jesus. You, you must leave other gods. And you're like, great, I can do that. I'm not bowing down to any statues right now, except for that one in my living room. Oh, uh, just kidding. Uh, no, but what are, what are false gods? False gods are just means of comfort. In the ancient world, life was rough. And people accumulated gods, gods to comfort them. The more gods you had, the more security you had, the more comfort you had, right? I've got a god over the weather. I've got a god over night. I've got a god over the morning. I've got gods for every conceivable issue that I may face in life. And these gods give me comfort. But Abram is leaving all of that. And you too must leave any other form, any other source of comfort or security in your life to follow Jesus. A false god, an idol, is rightly described as Anything that you sin in your life to keep. Anything that you sin when you, when you want to hold on to something fast. Maybe you sin with anger. Maybe you sin with lust. But that's simply because one of your gods is being threatened. One of your idols is being threatened. A, a god is something you sin to get and also something you sin when you don't get. That is what a, a god is. And it might not look like a little statue that you bow down to, but it's doing the same thing in your heart. It's, it's causing you anxiety and fear or anger, and that is sin. But you must leave these things. So there's, there's, a, there's a good little list that I learned in seminary about gods that we often have in our heart, gods in our heart, little false gods. A one god in your heart might be the need to control everything and anything and anyone. Just the need to have control in your life. That is a God in your life that you have to leave to follow Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, you are now in control. Or there might be the God of, of pleasing people. 
You're only happy when people are pleased with you. And when people aren't pleased with you, you aren't happy anymore. And that's when you sin. That's when you lust. That's when you get angry. People-pleasing. You have to leave people-pleasing to follow Jesus because Jesus says, I am the only one that you should seek the pleasure of now. And sometimes you must actively, actively go against people-pleasing to please Jesus. People-pleasing. Or how about, how, about, how about the fear? Fear angle, anxiety, fear. I'm just afraid all the time. God says you must have no other fears but Him and Him alone. You can't live by fear. You must live by the fear of God. Or how about um, the love of pleasure? I just want to be comfortable in life. I just want to be. I just want to find pleasure. I just want to relax, decompress. That's all I need. If I could just decompress, if my life could just become less chaotic, so I could relax, then I would stop sinning. I'm sure. So I'm going to sin to get my pleasures. I'm going to slack off on my responsibilities because of my need for pleasure. All of these are gods that you must leave if you're going to serve Jesus. You must leave to serve Jesus. That's, that's the first one. You thought that was the easy one, but now it gets really bad after that. You also must leave, and this is parallel, you must leave your sins. Any sin can come between you and God. Isaiah 55 verse 6 says this, Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him... Return to Yahweh, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Your sin comes between you and God, and you must be ready to leave and forsake all sin. And notice how Isaiah even describes sin. It is unrighteousness of thought. You have to be ready to leave and forsake that. It is the way that is wicked. The paths, maybe, the the habits that you've accumulated in your life of wickedness, of dishonoring God. You have to be willing to cut ties with that and leave those things if you want to follow God. And it's not just an initial leaving. Once again, the Christian life is, is marked in its beginning by leaving things, but it's also characteristic of the Christian life to continually be leaving things, to maybe every once in a while take an inventory of your life and saying, man, what is more important to me than God right now? What is coming between me and God? I'm going to leave that. You must leave all other gods. You must leave your own sins. You must lead, uh, leave your own versions of righteousness, your own, um, your own version of good enough in myself to be pleasing to God. Uh, and, and, and this maybe is surprising to us because we have to, be, we have, to have a righteousness to, to approach God, to be with God. God is holy, and we must have righteousness to be in relationship with Him. But the scripture says our righteousness is not good enough. As a matter of fact, our righteousness is unrighteousness to God. Scripture even tells us in Philippians 3 verse 8, we need to be found in him that's in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes by the works of the law, but having the righteousness which is through faith, the righteousness that is in Christ. We need to have Christ's righteousness. Even the best life you could live would not be Christ's righteousness. And you need His righteousness. That means you need to, when, you, when you're coming to God, say, I do not come to you on the basis of good things I have done. I, have, I, do, not, I do not come to you on the basis of a good family that I've grown up in. 
I do not come to you on the basis of reading my Bible every day. That's not why I'm in a relationship with you. I'm in a relationship with you because the blood of Jesus is on me. And that is all that I claim to stand right with you. You must leave your own versions of righteousness to come to God and follow him. You must leave your comfort zones. You must leave your, and that goes back to an an idol, I suppose, but you must leave your comfort zones because you're following a God who is intent on sanctifying you. And you, you can't follow him if you're constantly trying to protect your comfort zones. You also must leave perhaps certain friendships, certain relationships. Now, don't worry. They'll probably leave you as soon as you start talking about how you love Jesus the most. But you must be willing to do that. You, you will not be liked by all people. So you must leave those things. And also, you, finally, in kind of summing it all up, you, you must essentially leave the lordship of your life. If you're going to follow God, you're following him as Lord. You don't just get to pick the kind of Jesus that you want. You don't get to just get to pick the the verses about Jesus that you want to follow. You have to follow all of Jesus. You can't just follow him as Savior. You have to. You have to follow him as Lord as well. Otherwise, you're not following him at all. You're following an idol of Jesus that you've created in your own image. And that is not Jesus at all. You must leave. So, we've got hearing, that is essential to following God, and also leaving, or you could say obeying. It's, it's essential to follow God. But how could, how can we leave? How could Abram leave all of these things? That, comes, that brings us to our, our third key word. And write this one down. Believing. Believing. How could Abram leave all of this? Because he wasn't just leaving something. He was following something. He was believing something better. There's popular definitions of faith in our age that we live in. Some people think of faith as blind. Faith means I just don't know what I'm going to do next, but I'm going to take a leap of faith. I, I, I'm following something that I cannot prove. That is faith. I suppose you could say it that way, but I don't think the Bible would actually describe faith as blind, as a leap of faith, as following something you cannot prove or you do not truly fully believe in. I don't think that's what, what actual biblical descriptions of faith look like. For example, Romans 4.21 the great description of faith. What does it say faith is? Faith is fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. That's what faith is. You are fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. Romans 4.21. Or how about Hebrews? Uh, You should turn over to Hebrews. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. You guys were probably wondering when I was going to finally come to Hebrews chapter 11. There's so many passages on faith. We have to work our way through them systematically. But Hebrews chapter 11 gives many glorious descriptions of what faith looks like. And it even describes and defines faith a little bit there in the beginning. Hebrews chapter 11 in your Bible. Chapter 11 verse 1. You're familiar with this. This is faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And the conviction of things not seen. Notice all those words. Faith is convinced. Faith is assured. 
Uh, faith is a conviction. Faith is a certainty in biblical terms. Uh, faith is not just trusting in what your eyes can see, though. Faith is a full conviction and certainty about God, His character, and the things that He has promised as well. That's what faith is. Faith is looking at God and saying, you are 100% trustworthy, therefore your word and your promises are 100% sufficient for my conviction and my assurances. That's what faith is. You're believing in the trustworthiness of God and therefore the certainty of his promises. Matter of fact, look over Hebrews 11, verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a far distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I often refer to uh, faith as binoculars, spiritual binoculars. It's as though you're living in the future, the distant future, as if it is right there and present. You're, you're seeing and greeting these things from afar. Faith is saying, if God says it's going to be, then it's as if it's already present in my life, and I hold to it, even though it's far away. Look at Abe's faith. Let's just jump back over to, to twelve Genesis 12. Look at what God called Abraham to do and how God called him to follow him. He said, leave your land, your kin, your father's house. And then what does he say? To a land that I will show you. Now, the form of the Hebrew verb there is very clear. God is not saying to the land that you will see or to the land that you will choose or to the land that you will like. He is saying to the land that I will cause you to see. And, and Abraham, or Abram at this point, has to go on with that. But remember, the trustworthiness of God, even at this point in his life, is, is sufficient for him to even go and not even understand where exactly he's going to end up. Notice Abram had to give up control. Abram had to give up comfort. Abram had to give up security to follow God. But... What was he doing the whole time? He was believing. He was believing in the trustworthiness of God. And that's what gave his faith strength. Now, some of you don't know this. A few of you do. Because I've, I've told a few of you about this at one point or another. But uh, some of you don't know that I am a smoker. smoker of meats that really scared the girls once when I said that they're like oh my word but the thing about smoking is if you don't keep your uh, hopper filled with uh, wood pellets soon the smoker will run out of fuel and as soon as it runs out of fuel then your beautiful grill will stop grilling and it will shut off and soon everything will get cooler and cooler and cooler. But the way you continue to keep the heat growing is to continue to feed it with fuel. I think that's the way faith is and that's the way faith works and that's the way faith is strengthened through feeding it with fuel. 
What is the fuel that faith grows on? Even, even young faith grows strong with some sort of fuel. What is that fuel? Believing is. Believing in promises is. As you, as you understand more of God's glorious future plans, your faith is strengthened and fueled. If, if faith is dependent on believing in God and His trustworthiness, the more you know of God and the more you know of His promises, the stronger your faith will become. That is why we're spending years on Sunday night talking about future things in the service with, uh, with everyone. Because faith grows by understanding the faithfulness of our God and His trustworthiness. And when you, when you trust in God, your faith grows in His Word as well. That is the fuel of faith. And, and here's where God strengthens Abram's faith as well. Notice all the promises he makes to Abram. He, he doesn't just call him to leave things. He also calls him to believe in other things. He says, instead of your land, instead of your kin, instead of your father's house, verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now notice this here. Abram isn't simply obeying God by leaving things. He must also be following and believing and pursuing promises. Sometimes we talk about faith and repentance. They're on the same side of the same coin. But that is, that is true Christianity. True, true, true Christianity is both. It's both repentance and it is faith. You're both leaving something and going after something else. If, if, if I'm on this wall and God's over here on this wall, but I like being over here on this wall because my sin is over there on that wall, what do I have to do to get to Jesus? I have to leave that wall in my sin, but I have to go to Jesus. I, I, can't, do, I can't go to Jesus unless I leave, right? You have to do both at the same time. Faith is, faith is believing and Leaving at the same time, or the word we use is repentance. Both of those are involved in the Christian life. And, and notice, God says, you're going to leave this, but look at the greater things that I am going to give you. By the way, in the ancient world, gods were known to promise all sorts of things, but no god ever was known to promise uh, to make someone into a great nation. This is, this is a bigger promise than any god has ever promised before. But, but notice what Abram is following after. And here is where it gets exciting, because here we begin to get into something called the Abrahamic covenant, which is the platform covenant that God's going to bring all of his, all of his future plans through. This is the beginning of the end. This is God saying, this is how I'm going to return sinful man to a right relationship with me in the Garden of Eden through this covenant that I'm making with this man and his family. What, what is the great promise? God says, I will make you a great nation. By the way, what does a nation imply? A nation implies land. A nation implies people. A nation implies a king. Matter of fact, we see all of that as God kind of adds and strengthens this covenant promise. We even see that down in seven, we see the land in view. We see the people in view, a seed. We also see a king promised 
in chapter 17 as well, right? That's what, that's what God's promising. He's saying, I am going to make you a great nation and bring up a great king through you, through which I'm going to fulfill all of my plans to crush the head of the serpent. And you're going to have to keep following in the Bible to really totally get a clear view of what that looks like. But that's God's plan. It's first to the promise of a great nation and then also a great blessing. Notice, Abram will be a blessing. He'll be an instrument of God's blessing. And once again, we see the reverse of the curse language implied here. We see a promised, a promised blessing that's going to undo all the curses that we saw in Genesis 3. And, and what's implied here is, hey, this is the promise we've been waiting for. Remember, remember, Genesis is just, where is God's promised seed, promised man coming? Where is he? Where? What line is he going to be in? Who's going to stomp the head of the snake? It comes in the language of, of blessing. And, and here we see it's coming through Abram. The promised seed of Eid, Eve to, to rescue fallen man from the curse of sin is going to come through not just Abraham, though, but through a nation that God is going to make through Abram. And, and notice even the language there of make. I'm going to make you a great nation. Where have you heard that word before? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God made. And, and that's intentional, I think, on Moses' part as he writes this. Notice, the God who speaks the universe into existence is also going to remake the universe through the power and the person of his beloved son. That's how he's going to do it. Through making something out of nothing. Bringing about redemption out of catastrophe and chaos. Through our sin, God's going to make a great a great blessing flow. And even, just notice the amazing language there. I'm going to make your name great. Isn't that, that's ironic, because if you've been reading in Genesis 11, you just saw at the Tower of Babel, the people try to make their own name great and try to pursue all the blessings of stability and all of these glorious things that, that you can only find in God and in his kingdom. But they were trying to seek all of these things outside of God in a relationship with him. But now God is saying, that didn't work. Matter of fact, I, I caused all the nations to be dispersed and all the languages to be created because of that kind of rebellious talk. But now I am going to make your name great. And it's going to be in relationship with me. Isn't that just the way the, the snake and the serpent works in our world? He tries, to, he tries to make us think that something we have in God is something we don't have in God. And then we sin to get something that we can't get in God. But we could have gotten it anyway if we would have followed God in the first place. So let's move on, though. Believing. There it is, believing. Another word that marks true faith in God's work with his people. How about this key word, number four? Key word, showing. Another distinguishing mark of true faith is that it shows itself. It reveals itself. Your faith shows. You can't be a shadowy disciple. You can't be someone who's following after God and nobody knows that you're a Christian. That's not the way faith truly is described ever. What does Abram's faith look like as he follows God? Well, you see it there as he goes into the land, right? He is, he is not the only one in the promised land. The Canaanites are there, which kind of hints at you that there's going to be problems. God must first deal with these Canaanites, or these Canaanites must be converted to Yahweh worship if this promise is going to be fulfilled. 
But you, you also see that he is the only believer in Yahweh in Canaan as well. Because you see these little hints in the narrative. Not only are the, the Canaanites already in the land, but Abram appears at Shechem, which was this kind of industrial hub. It was, like, it was the grand road into Canaan. That's how you got into Canaan, was through Shechem. And even there, there's this tree called the Oak of Mora, which is a, a tree referring to a, a, literally a teacher. So perhaps this was not only like the center of commerce in Canaan, but it, it might have been also the, the center of Canaanite religion and teaching about the gods of Canaan as well. But notice what Abram did there. He didn't just follow God in the shadows. And in verse 8 of chapter 12, he calls upon the name of Yahweh. Call is not just a quiet prayer. Call is speaking out the name of something. Call is Calling upon means you are publicly claiming Yahweh as your God alone, as you are surrounded by a bunch of people that worship other gods. And this is true faith. True faith shows itself, doesn't it? True faith will always evidence itself in fruit in your life. And you'll stand out from others as well. Uh, God wants your faith to show. And it's actually through the showing of your faith that assurance comes as well. How, once again, how is faith strengthened? It's, it's strengthened through hearing God's promises. And where is Abram's faith strengthened? Where does Abram hear God's promises? It's as he faithfully obeys. And when he goes into the land, where does God appear to him again? And God adds to the promise again. It's right there in verse 7. Well, the Canaanites are in the land. To your seed I will give this land. Notice. Sometimes afflictions and trials and troubles are actually the best thing that can happen to your faith because that's where God's promises really, really come to you and are strengthened in your life. So showing, showing is another mark of the way God deals with his people. Final word, final word on our outline for describing how God calls people or a description of true discipleship. Look at this word, worshiping, worshiping. There are two postures that you could characterize the entire life of Abraham by. One is walking, and the other one is worshiping. Did you notice Abram creates or builds two altars while he's in Canaan? That's significant. Notice, Abram's faith was not only characterized by moving, by following after God, by believing in his promises, even though he couldn't see the, the actual promises there in front of him, but it was all also marked by a worship, a worshipfulness towards God, a calling upon the name of God. And here is the key to strengthening faith, actually. Faith is more than just leaving. Faith is more than just obeying. Faith is believing and faith is valuing God and your relationship with him above all other things in this life. That's why worship is such a, a picture of the Christian life. You are saying to Christ, you are more valuable than anything else. And I cherish you above all else. It is the key to faithfulness. Now, now really quick, doesn't that sound like the way Jesus calls us to follow him as well? You guys remember that passage in Luke chapter 9? How does Jesus call disciples? He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. What is Jesus saying there to you and to me if we are going to follow him? He is saying you must treasure me above all other things if you are going to follow me. I am worthy of being treasured above all other things. As a matter of fact, Jesus right there is saying that he is God who deserves the highest value in your life. That is, where, that is where true faith grows. That's where true faith comes from. You basically saying, I'm going to forfeit everything to follow you because anything besides you will take me from you if I put it at the highest place. Hey, one more thing. Turn over to... Uh, the Gospel of Mark. Turn over to the Gospel of Mark. I just want to show you. Just want to show you these these uh, these pictures of how God calls His disciples in the life of Levi, who became Matthew. Remember those those keywords. Remember those keywords: hearing, leaving, believing, showing, worshiping. Remember those keywords, and then look at just how Jesus calls the apostle. Matthew, who is here still named Levi, the tax collector. Uh, Chapter 2 of Mark, verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And then he, Levi, stood up and followed him. He followed him. Just like that. Notice that. First off, Jesus speaks, so Levi must hear. Uh, notice also, uh, Levi stood up from his tax booth, and he followed him. Just like that. He, he hears, he leaves, and by the way, this was, this was a very costly leave, because as soon as he leaves that tax booth, somebody else is going to jump right in there and take that job from him, because it was a very lucrative job that they weren't intending to give back. And, but notice, all, this is all built on the fact that Levi believed. He believed in Jesus more than those taxes, and this is the key, right? He chose to leave and follow Jesus, and to look at Jesus, and to look to Jesus more than he chose to look at the tax booth that he was leaving. And that's the key to truly following Jesus. I'm looking more at Jesus than I'm looking at what I'm losing. And then notice also worship. What did Levi do? Chapter chapter 2, verse 15 tells us he brought Jesus to his house with many tax collectors. And what is he doing? He's simply saying, here is the most significant person ever that I've ever met. And I want to introduce you to him as well. And here we see his allegiance is evident. We also see that a disciple cannot stay in the shadows. Matter of fact, for Levi, he had to leave. He had to stand out as well. And genuine discipleship not only doesn't remain in the shadows, it does this. It leaves all of this. Why? Because it cannot get over the fact that Jesus Christ himself has called you to follow him. I love the, the idea, because if, if you look at Mark's gospel, who else does Jesus call? He calls fishermen to follow him, and he says exactly the same thing to them as well. I, I can picture what Levi is thinking in his, in his mind and in his heart when Jesus says, follow me. He's saying, that's great. He's calling me the same way he called them. All, all people are equal at the foot of the cross. By the way, the other side of that, that, that coin there is the other disciples behind Jesus watching him call Levi, and they're thinking, that's great. He's calling them. 
him the exact same way he called us. Right? All, all, all people are equal at the foot of the cross. But this is what is the fuel of faith. What's, what I gain in following Jesus is so much better than what I lose in following Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this day and for your word that is, that is so true, so welcoming to our ears. I pray that there would be hearing that hears not just with the ear, but with the, the spiritual heart as well. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.